You're listening to Ocean Currents, a podcast brought to you by NOAA's Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary. This radio program was originally broadcast on KWMR in Point Reyes Station, California. Thanks for listening. listening to Ocean Currents. My name is Jennifer Stock. On Ocean Currents, we delve into the blue, watery part of our planet and highlight ocean-related topics. We talk with scientists, educators, explorers, policymakers, ocean enthusiasts, ocean adventurers, and more, all trying to uncover and learn about the mysterious and vital part of our planet. I bring this show to you from NOAA's Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary. Cordell Bank is one of four special areas in California waters that are part of the National Marine Sanctuary system. The sanctuary is located just offshore of the KWMR listening radius off the Marin-Sonoma coast in California. Today we'll be exploring the recent abalone die-off that resulted from a red tide event on the Sonoma coast just north of Point Reyes. My guest is Laura Rogers-Bennett, who works as a senior biologist specialist with the California Department of Fish and Game and the University of California Davis Wildlife Health Center. And she has been monitoring this area of the coast prior and after this event and has been very closely involved with learning what's going on and, and what to do. So we'll be back in just a moment talking with Laura. Please stay with us. Abalone, 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 and chunks of abalone. Oh, hello. This is Jennifer Stock, and you're listening to Ocean Currents. That song gets on your on your brain, and you want to keep singing it. We're going to be talking about abalone today. Um, welcome back. And if you've been paying attention to the news in the last few months, you've heard of recent event that has led to a localized abalone die-off on the Sonoma coast. It started in late August, and lots and lots of abalone and other invertebrates are washing up on the shore. So we're going to talk a little bit about this event today. My guest is Laura Rogers-Bennett. She's a senior biologist specialist with the California Department of Fish and Game and the UC Davis Wildlife Health Center. She focuses on addressing processes that impact marine populations and communities, then applying these findings to fishery management and marine conservation issues. Her lab works primarily with benthic, that's animals on the seafloor, marine invertebrates inhabiting nearshore rocky reef ecosystems. So, Laura, I'd like to welcome you to Ocean Currents. You're live on the air. Well, thank you for having me, Jennifer. Thanks so much for making time. I know you're really busy this week, and this is a great, great opportunity to talk about this event that's so close to Point Reyes. So first, just before we get too far into it, this position that you have is a joint position with the state of California and University of California Davis Wildlife Health Center. How are these two organizations linked up in terms of the type of work that you do? Well, I'm a biologist who works with the California Department of Fish and Game, and uh, that is my position, and I have an adjunct uh, position with UC Davis. And so I'm able to work with a lot of the staff and resources there as well. But uh, we have uh, a number of different groups that work on the ocean, and I think that uh, having those different groups and the resources that they bring to bear really helps us with our work. As you know, 
trying to work out on the ocean is really not a one-person adventure. You need uh, ship time, you need scuba uh, surveys, and you need a lot of equipment. So that's those are the kinds of things that we've been doing uh, on the Sonoma Coast. That's great. So you specialize in the near-shore environment, the Rocky Reef Habitat area, um, and you've been also working very closely on this abalone issue. But can we talk a little bit about first about abalone in general? We have had um, lots and lots of abalone in our historic past in California, and the populations have really changed a lot. But can you talk a little bit about the different species that we have and what is the most prominent species that we're working with now as a recreational fishery on the Sonoma Coast? Yes, um, a lot of people don't know, but we have uh, seven different species of abalone on the California coast, and some of them are uh, endangered, some of them are species of concern, and some of them are doing quite well, and we have fishery, recreational fishery for them. So the northern California area Uh, We have the red abalone, and that uh, north of San Francisco, they support a recreational fishery that we've had for many, many years. It's been a sustainable fishery, and we have free divers that go out and are able to fish. We have a number of important uh, regulations on that fishery, including bag limits, daily bag limits, yearly bag limits. We have size limits and season uh, closures. So uh, all those different regulations uh, have been in place, and they are functioning to help us maintain that fishery. In Southern California, uh, we have a number of species that were once fished, both recreationally and commercially. We have pink abalone, uh, green, white, Threaded abalone is a subspecies of pintos, and those are all in the south. Those uh, are not able to be fished right now, and some of those are at very low densities. Uh, White abalone, for example, is one of our endangered species in California. It was the uh, first species to be put on the uh, endangered species list that was a marine invertebrate. Shortly after that, we listed as endangered the black abalone, and those are a very shallow uh, intertidal species, and those are also at very low, critically low uh, densities. So we have a range of species in the state, and there uh, is a range of population conditions, some doing well and some uh, in need of help. Great overview. For listeners that aren't too familiar with what abalone is, it's basically a large snail with a yeah. big outer shell and, you know, wider than your hand, typically, I guess, uh, if you stretch out your hand. And the colors of the shell, are that, is that related to the diet of algae that they eat since they, they eat algae as their primary diet? Yes, and it's also related to which species they are. So, for example, the red abalone uh, along the north coast and in the colder waters in uh, central and southern California, um, that species is actually the biggest species of abalone in the world. So we can boast uh, the biggest species of abalone, and it has a beautiful brick red color that it gets from its diet, which um, includes some of the large macroalgae like uh, 
kelp, giant kelp, and the bullwhip kelp that we have in Northern California, as well as some of the short red algae that it eats. And when it eats those short reds, it develops this beautiful bright brick red coloration. The species in Southern California, have they become so low in number and endangered because of over-harvesting by humans? Or what were some other factors that would influence those populations? Yes, so in Southern California, we had uh, very active commercial and recreational fisheries. And uh, in 1997, those fisheries were um, put together and um, they were uh, over-harvested and once those over-harvestings took place, uh, in 97, they closed those fisheries. Yeah, I've seen pictures of just piles and piles and piles of these shells in the past. Yeah. We don't see that anymore, No, obviously. Now, there's also, have you worked on um, the withering foot syndrome? This is an issue that kind of took place in the 90s, and I haven't really heard too much about it recently. But this is a syndrome that affected the size of the snail's foot, the abalone's foot, um, really hurting these populations. Is that something you were working with as well? Yes, we have um, a researcher here in the lab where I work at the Bodega Marine Lab who's done a lot of work with withering syndrome. Um, withering syndrome is caused by a bacteria in the water, and that bacteria is now endemic south of San Francisco. And that uh, bacteria uh, infected into the abalone in conjunction with warm water can bring on the onset of this withering syndrome, which is a lethal disease of abalone where they, uh, the foot muscle withers up and the animal dies fairly quickly. So that withering syndrome needs both the bacterial infection and the warm water to trigger the disease. So you can have populations that are infected with the bacteria that don't succumb to disease if they're living in the cold water. So uh, some of the laboratories here are tracking this uh, northern spread of the bacteria, and it has slowly been moving uh, north through uh, central California up, and uh, most recently it's been found just south of Point Reyes. So is it endemic only to abalone? Can it, could this spread to other mollusk animals, other snails or limpets? No, we haven't seen it in other species. It seems to be fairly specific. It's so interesting. I just find that fascinating. That Yes, it's another uh, threat to abalone populations, which we need to consider uh, in the management of the species. Yeah, and I can imagine with the climate change, temperature changes, and habitat range shifts of other species, this could be just one more thing to add to the to the list of things that could happen. Yeah. For those tuning in, this is Jennifer Stock, and the show is Ocean Currents, and I'm talking with Laura Rogers-Bennett, Senior Biologist with California Department of Fish and Game and the University of California Davis Wildlife Health Center, and we're talking about abalone. So we've talked a little bit about their natural history. It seems like they thrive in cold water environments. So during El Nino events, when warm water comes up, do they just not do as well? Or what happens during El Nino events when we have warm water? 
So during the warm water events, uh, we can have a combination of things that are not good for abalone. As I mentioned, if the, those abalone are infected with the, the bacteria that causes withering syndrome, they can succumb to the disease. Uh, the foot muscle will die. They're not able to uh, consume their food and process and absorb the food, and they will starve and die. Um, the other thing that can happen during warm water events is the warm water uh, holds a lot less nitrogen, uh, which is important for kelp growth. And so the kelp supply, the food for the abalone, will decrease during warm water years. So sometimes we'll have uh, very poor kelp years during warm water El Nino events and the abalone uh, will have very poor reproduction and gonad mass during those warm water events. How much algae does an abalone need in terms of their daily intake or survival? Well, they need quite a bit, and um, they, what they do is they will eat in uh, the amounts frequently that drift past them. So, uh, as you know, the kelp are very productive plants, and um, they can shed off their blades in the water, and those blades drift past the abalone and some of the other invertebrates on the bottom, and they'll reach up and capture them and, and consume them. Wow, I could see that visually, just a little bit of a reach yeah, there at that yeah, point. Yeah, you can see them. Um, I know that maybe some of your listeners are divers or abalone divers, and you can actually see them rear up and extend their foot and try and capture the drift that's coming past them. That's great. So this past summer was a really interesting event. Uh, starting in late August, there was a big harmful algal bloom or red tide event, and we'll talk about the specifics of that in a little bit here. But can you talk a little bit about the situation that we had here in terms of this event and, and what happened to this nearshore environment during and after the event? Yes, we um, had a large red tide event, and it was um, the start of it. We were able to notice a lot of bioluminescence in the water, which we've seen in the past. This was actually an unusually uh, strong bioluminescent pattern in the water, and um, the waters in the evenings were bright blue, neon blue color, and uh, that happened starting in uh, August, mid-August. And we had some red tide um, in early August. You could see um, very uh, faint streaks of a reddish, orangish color in the water, almost looked like um, tomato juice spilled into the waters. And we could see some of that in uh, Sonoma County. And then... Um, Coming around uh, the end of August, August 27, 28, we got our first reports of dead invertebrates washing up on the shore, dead sea stars, dead abalone, and some of our large chitons, the gumboot chitons, which um, are sort of an orange color, uh, as big as abalone, and they were washing up dead on shore. And that was the first indication that Instead of having just a phytoplankton bloom, which we do get 
frequently in the uh, late summer and early falls that this was actually a harmful bloom that was killing marine invertebrates. So when we talk about harmful algal blooms, it's phytoplankton, but they're harmful because they're toxic because it's in so much mass, or is it just, what? how, how, how is it harmful? Well, some of the, um, the blooms can be harmful in two ways. Most of the blooms that we have are not harmful at all. The vast majority are um, phytoplankton blooms that are actually feeding the trophic levels in the ocean, and they're not harmful at all. But there are some occasions when we'll have such a huge bloom that the biomass itself of the phytoplankton can start to uh, deplete oxygen in the water. And we've had that uh, in Northern California in the past in very small um, areas like the backs of coves, maybe areas less than the size of your living room or, or maybe two living rooms. Um, you can see that the oxygen has been depleted there and uh, many of the marine life have been um, killed in those very low water movement areas. Um, sometimes we also get a lot of kelp washing into the backs of the coves. The bacteria that are breaking down the phytoplankton bloom or breaking down the kelp will um, pile up and they'll start to kill organisms. Um, as I say, very localized patches. Um, the other way that uh, algal blooms can be harmful is the blooming species can actually produce biotoxins. And there are both dinoflagellates, um, and many of the dinoflagellates that we get, of course, are non-toxic, but there are a few that are toxin producers. And you may, many of the listeners may have heard about uh, some fish kills. Um, they may have heard about paralytic shellfish poisoning, and these are toxins that are accumulating in the tissues of marine life, and then uh, humans are eating them and, and getting sick. So um, it's not a new phenomenon, but it's something that um, very rarely kills marine life uh, on the North Coast. This summer what we had was something very uh, different. We had a phytoplankton bloom, which turned out to be uh, one of the dominant species in the bloom, uh, was a dinoflagellate that was Goniolax, was the genus name. And we've been working closely with uh, researchers at Sonoma State, Karina Nielsen and uh, Adele Paquin, and they've been looking at some of the phytoplankton that we have in the near shore. And they were able to identify the species that was dominant during the late August mortality event uh, for abalone and urchin. And they found Goniolix spinifera was the dominant um, form in the phytoplankton bloom. And so that's what was happening at that time. And that is a known toxin producer, but we know very little about the kinds of toxins that those uh, Goniolex produce. Are you thinking that the die-off, it seems like these are all really large invertebrates, these sea stars and gumboot chitons and abalone, those are all really large invertebrates. 
Is there a thought at this point as to was it the hypoxia that created this die-off or the biotoxin from the goniolix? Well, it's a very um, important question, and it's one that we're still looking into. We have a number of uh, indications that it may have been a toxin involved. It may not have been just hypoxic conditions. First of all, we've seen some uh, mortalities in aquaria that had high oxygen concentrations. We've seen mortalities um, in transect locations that were out on exposed headlands where we know there was a lot of wave action and a lot of water mixing and um, a lot of oxygen. So those are indications to us that um, there may have been a toxin involved and that it may not have been a a localized uh, hypoxia event. That's so interesting. I mean, I've heard of biotoxins affecting like sea lions. Demoic acid, for example, is really harmful for their, really screws up their brain. And I've just never heard about that with invertebrates before. Is this fairly new to see something like this? Yes, it's not very common that the biotoxins will have um, effects on invertebrates, but there are um, different kinds of toxins. There is... uh, some toxins that only affect fish. There are some toxins that will only affect invertebrates. And so some of these toxins can be very, very specific. With the die-off that we've had here, one of the interesting things about it has been that there have been some species that have been more affected than others. So, for example, the sea urchins, uh, especially in water depths, less than 30 feet have been heavily impacted, and um, the abalone less than 30 feet have been impacted. But out at the deeper depths, uh, the mortality is much less. Also, the species that are affected have been very different. Uh, So bat stars seem to have been doing fine during this event, whereas sea urchins and sea stars, other sea stars, Uh, seem to have been affected. We've not found any evidence of any fish mortalities during this event. So interesting. And how are they, are they just ingesting the dinoflagellates because it's everywhere and it's on top of their food resource or exact, how are they ingesting it? Yes, this is another very interesting aspect of this particular harmful algal bloom event is that we have a very poor understanding of the mechanism of action and how those um, the transfer of the toxin from a planktonic up in the water column phytoplankton species down to the benthos. Um, these are not filter feeders, abalone and uh, sea urchins. They are eating um, different types of algae on the bottom, and so... Um, Those organisms that are in the phytoplankton, um, we don't understand that transfer into a herbivore very well. Although dinoflagellates are known uh, to produce cysts, they have a cyst which is part of their life cycle, and those cysts can be uh, benthic, um, and they do undergo 
some parts of their life on on the bottom, but this is another part uh, that is very poorly understood. Wow, these tiny little microscopic organisms are wrecking havoc on our yes. understanding. Yes, they are. Well, how about transfer into the food web? We have all these dead invertebrates on the shoreline, and what a perfect scavenging opportunity for near shore uh, mammals that are near the, the edge of the sea, like raccoons or um, gulls and other seabirds. Did you see any uh, transference or were animals eating this, the dead stuff? Uh, when we were diving, we did see a lot of uh, bat stars feeding on dead and dying urchin and abalone. Um, but as I say, they seemed to be um, doing just fine and weren't uh, negatively impacted by that. Uh, we were concerned about uh, potential transfers up the food web, and so we were able to uh, get very small numbers of seabirds that had washed up on shore, recently uh, died, um, and we were able to test a couple of common mirrors, and it looked as though from the uh, test results from you see Santa Cruz and the fishing game lab there that uh, routinely screens for um, dead birds and seabirds that these were very uh, normal mortalities of young of the year, common mirrors that seem to uh, have very poor fat content and were starving and, and not doing well. And of course, Many of the seabirds in the fall, um, that's a time when there is some mortalities uh, that are normal for that time of year. So we, don't, we did not see any evidence of uh, transfer up the food web to, to marine birds. Well, that's good. At least we didn't have a massive event Bird here. Dial. Well, you know, last month, I, th I think it was last month, I had Josh Adams from USGS on. We talked about city shearwaters, and we were reflecting about how the inspiration for um, Alfred Hitchcock's The Birds movie came to be. And it was from reports of city shearwaters that were that had ingested some plankton bloom, probably a biotoxin, that they just went nuts, and they were hitting doors and houses all over the place and dropping in the town of Capitola. And, Wow, it's it's amazing the stories and the ideas that come around from these these blooms, but we need to take a quick break right now, um, just for another minute or two, and I'd like to come back and talk a little bit about what causes these these harmful algal blooms or red tide as as they're popularly called. So if you wouldn't mind, Laura, just staying on the line another minute, we'll come back in just a minute and continue the conversation. Sounds good. Thanks so much. Just Thank stay you. stay right on line. For those of you just tuning in, this is Ocean Currents, and my name is Jennifer Stock, and I'm talking today with Laura Rogers-Bennett, who is with the California Department of Fish and Game and the U University of California Davis Wildlife Health Center. And we've been discussing abalone and this big die-off event that happened on the Sonoma Coast due to the red tide and harmful algal bloom. Very interesting stream of events and the biology of, of all these animals and how they're interrelated. So we're going to take a short break. We'll be back in just a minute.
tuned to KWMR, Point Race Station, and Bellinas. My name is Jennifer Stock, and you're listening to Ocean Currents. Uh, Ocean Currents is the first Monday of every month. We're part of the West Marin Matters series, and uh, today we're talking about abalone and the uh, interesting way it's tied with our food web and the uh, oceanographic events that we've had this year. We recently had a red tide this late summer. So I'd like to bring back Laura. I have Laura Rogers-Bennett on the phone. You're live back on the air, Laura. Good afternoon. <laughs> Hi. Thanks for waiting um, on the side there. So I want to just get back to what causes these events. It seems like every year in the late summer, fall, we do have a bit of a brown water. I notice going to the shoreline, you kind of smell it a little bit. But what are, what are the conditions that cause this type of event in the ocean? Well, it's usually a combination of factors which we get in the fall, and that is uh, a lot of sunshine will promote blooms as well as uh, still ocean conditions without a lot of uh, turbulent water. And sometimes there'll be organisms that the conditions are just right for them and the populations will bloom or you'll get high densities of them in the water column. I think I remember back, it was around Labor Day, and we had really calm sea conditions, like super flat. Is that about when this all was taking place? Yes. Actually, we had um, the mortality portion of this event happen in the end of August, which was around 27th, 28th. So um, we had some sea conditions at that time also that were were quite calm and uh, still still water, so we had a bloom event. And um, the red tide and the bloom event continued for many weeks. Um, it was in Sonoma County. We had uh, dark red-brown waters in the near shore uh, for most of the month of September, um, even a little into October, and um, the species composition of those blooms um, is very dynamic, and they can change uh, very quickly over time. So we've had a number of different species that have uh, bloomed and been the main contributor to these blooms persisting. Most of the um, species that have been blooming since the late August event um, have been not known to produce any toxins. So those are just blooming species without the ability to produce toxins. So that was a very focused event in a very specific geographic range, it seems, that had that biotoxin. That- it was. It was, uh, as, we, as far as we can tell, it was uh, pretty much isolated to Sonoma County. Uh, we had reports from a little bit south of Bodega Bay up uh, past Shelter Cove, and it looked like it was pretty much confined to that region, which is quite a large area for for a bloom. Um, and given the information that we did receive on the abalone dying, uh, we did make recommendations to the Fish and Game Commission to close the abalone season uh, a couple months early. Normally, abalone season would close November 30th, and we asked them to close it uh, two months early. So they did that in the Sonoma County range. 
Have you had any pushback from uh, recreational divers about that? It seems like it would be hard for them to take, but it seems like it makes a lot of sense. We want to protect this for as a sustainable fishery. Yeah, I think um, keeping the Mendocino area open, uh, Mendocino County open, uh, still provided for a lot of uh, fishing opportunities uh, in October and November, which are, are pretty low fishing months anyway, especially in November. We get a lot of the beginnings of winter storms. So uh, I think a lot of people realized why we had made the request for the premature closure just in Sonoma County. Mm-hmm. So you have been monitoring in this area, or your team has been, um, before and after this event. What does a survey consist of, and where do you survey? Yes, we uh, routinely survey uh, four sites in Sonoma County and four sites in Mendocino County, and we use that information to help us uh, gauge uh, how those populations and sites are doing and um, how the uh, fishery is doing. And we feed that information um, as mandated in the abalone recovery and management plan into some formulas to determine whether we should maintain the fishery as is or if we see big decreases in the densities uh, throughout the fishery, then that would trigger uh, requests for a reduction in the take. So that's how the uh, abalone are managed in Northern California. And what we found um, after this event was we were able to increase the number of surveys that we routinely do. And uh, this event came towards the end of our normal sampling season uh, and so we went back out to some of the Sonoma County sites, um, and we were able to do surveys there to see if we could document um, how many abalone were dying at some of those sites. And what our surveys entail are usually we do uh, around 36 transect surveys. We lay down transect tapes. They are 2 by 30 meter tapes and we count and measure uh, abalone and urchin and uh, invertebrates along those uh, transects. We also document algal cover and substrate type, and we um, have been doing that since 2001. So we have a pretty good sense of what uh, is out there for those particular sites and what we did in response to the harmful algal bloom event was we went back out to the Sonoma County sites and we were able to document that uh, close to 30% of the abalone along the transects that we surveyed were dead at Fort Ross. Uh, we had comparable numbers at Timber Cove, uh, Ocean Cove, and then um, up at Salt Point uh, we had lower mortalities as we move north, um, and those were about 12% of all the abalone uh, that we documented along our transects were dead at Salt Point. And as I mentioned before, the transects in water uh, less than 30 feet had higher mortalities, 
and the uh, transsex deeper had um, lower mortality. So it was, we did have much higher uh, in the shallower waters. Really shallow mm-hmm. area, maybe a little warmer, more intense bloom or some mm-hmm. something going on. A lot of those blooms will be in the upper layers of the water column in that upper portion, and um, we seem to to get a lot more mortality in shallow. And then for sampling, do you do, do you, can you look at um, online data in terms of chlorophyll data to get a sense of when red tide is happening, or do you have to go out and sample it all the time? And how do well, we get an um, idea of that? You can, we don't typically uh, keep track and monitor uh, chlorophyll concentrations as part of our abalone work. Um, since they're not filter feeders, they're not uh, eating some of the components of the organisms that make up the chlorophyll A measures. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But um, what you can see is that uh, if you look at a trace of chlorophyll, we typically get the most productivity in the spring when we get the strong upwelling. So the upwelled waters will bring nutrient-rich water to the surface. It's very cold, and um, that will trigger a lot of um, organisms to be um, growing during those conditions. Um, So those chlorophyll A concentrations are much higher than what we saw during this mortality event. Hmm. which was in August. So typically we will get higher chlorophylls in the spring than we did in the fall. Yeah. So how about, I? this is kind of switching topic here real quick. I know that um, you've been doing other abalone surveys in other parts of the coast, right? Um, or do you just focus on the Sonoma coast? Uh, we also do surveys in the Mendocino coast. Oh, yeah. that's right. Sonoma and Mendocino. Mm-hmm. I... I'm trying to remember here. I think, was there an, a survey going out on the Farallon Islands for black abalone? Were you involved with that at some point? I think Ed Huber was leading Ed up a study. Ed Huber led that, and <laughs> that happened quite a long time ago. We are interested in potentially repeating some of those surveys. So um, that's something that we might do in the future. Uh, but it would be really nice to see what black abalone populations are doing out at the Farallon. Yeah. It, logistically, they're a difficult place to, to work, so we haven't been out there yet. Pretty pretty hard place to, to visit and survey, I take it. Yeah. Well, I remember I was just mentioning it in the office, and, and uh, Dan Howard mentioned that you had been helping Ed with that um, a couple of years back, so I was curious to hear if it was still happening. No, we, we hadn't gotten out yet um, to do that work, but we're interested in putting that on our to do with. Is there thought with the closures of abalone up and down the coast? I mean, we have this north coast fishery that seems to be hanging in there, but we have so many species here on an endangered list or species of concern. How about those? Have we seen many changes in those populations since those closures have been in effect? Yes, that's a really good question. Um, one of the species of abalone in California that's uh, that's in the most trouble um, is the white abalone. They were at fairly low numbers to begin with, and then they were part of the fishery down in Southern California. 
and uh, there was not a concerted effort to keep track of just that portion of the fishery. In other words, track white abalone landings per se. In some cases, they were lumped in as abalone landings. And so some of these species were serially depleted. We did see the depletion of some of the pink abalone in Southern California commercial uh, records, and then some of the fisheries switched to some of these other species, like the white abalone. Right now, the white abalone are in very bad condition. Um, we have a few in captivity, and we are trying to develop a captive breeding program for those that species. Uh, but that's been a big challenge, and the other challenge uh, with that is how the juveniles might fare once they're put back out into the wild, uh, although we have not gotten to that step yet. So that's something that uh, is work that needs to be done. Uh, black abalone are also on the endangered species list. They were hit very hard by the withering syndrome and some of the warm water events in southern and central California. So we've had some areas um, out on the Channel Islands where there used to be millions of black abalone, and now um, those populations have, about 90% of them have died uh, due to withering syndrome, um, and they are doing very badly. The two other species that are species of concern um, in Southern California are the greens and pinks. And uh, some of our team, Ian Taniguchi down in Southern California, who's also with Fish and Game, part of our uh, project, he and his colleagues have been tracking uh, greens and pinks, and they've been seeing some recovery, natural recovery of pinks in very small pockets. They'll see some juveniles, so that's been very encouraging. And they've been um, experimenting with different types of aggregation uh, work that they can do to help to facilitate natural spawning. So, so they've been very active in working with the federal NOAA partners in the programs there who deal with uh, protected species and protected resources division and working with those species. So what I was reading about mariculture mer and abalone, it seems like it's been a really tough um, mariculture situation to get set up and to be successful in terms of having the spawners um, meet in the water column and then settle out. Has there been advances in that? It sounds like if we're trying to do a breeding captivity program, we have to start to figure those things out. Has there been some advances in that? Yes. Well, one of the things that um, we're really lucky to have is a uh, small but active abalone aquaculture industry in California. And they were some of the pioneers um, in terms of being able to culture and rear abalone in um, captivity. And we have a uh, small number of farms in California that raise abalone for uh, the restaurant trade and for, for consumption. And they have been the ones who figured out the spawning and rearing methods. 
and they're very successful at spawning male and female abalone, getting the um, gametes to meet and uh, fertilize and rearing the larvae. There's a short-lived larval period where the abalone are in the water column. They're living off of a yolk, and then they settle down onto the benthos metamorphose and, uh, and begin their benthic existence. Well, that's promising in terms of yes. both supporting the potentially the wild population, although the reintroduction back into the ocean is, is it sounds like a challenge. And how about um, long-term concerns for abalone? This is a mollusk, and they need calcium carbonate in order to produce a shell, from what I understand. Has anybody been doing any research on the potential impacts from acidification, ocean acidification on abalone and their reproduction? Yes, we think that um, abalone, like many of the shellfish, um, can be very negatively impacted by ocean acidification. So, as you know, it, the more CO2 in the atmosphere, that can change the water chemistry to make it more acidic, and that makes it difficult for organisms to lay down shell to uh, calcify. And... Um, Abalone would be one of the animals that that would fall into that category of species that might be susceptible to ocean acidification. Um, at the Bodega Marine Lab, they're putting together a research program uh, to investigate ocean acidification, and that's a project headed up by uh, Dr. Sanford and Brian Gaylord, and those people are going to be... Um, working on a number of species right now. I think they're mainly working with oysters, but um, they, they may be expanding the species that they work with and looking at um, other species other than oysters and mussels. Wow. Urchins. Great. Well, thank you, Laura. This has been really interesting. Are there other last comments you have in terms of our long-term conservation for this habitat and the species and how we can, as people who potentially eat abalone and uh, enjoy this part of the world, how can we be better stewards of it? Oh, um, I think that in the past we have been uh, very good stewards of the red abalone fishery in Northern California. And I think we could view it really as a, as a Cadillac fishery um, in the region because uh, it is one of the largest species in the world. Uh, we have really active, wonderful divers who go out free diving, and um, they know the importance of not collecting too many um, at all the depths as we did um, in different parts of California, and so they've been good about uh, sticking to the rules. I guess what this event has taught us is that there may be some unforeseen uh, events that can come in and impact abalone and urchin populations uh, that we have to take into account. These weren't really uh, accounted for in the management of the species, these, uh, these risks that just came out of nowhere. And so I think moving forward, we're going to really need to think about uh, all of the potential impacts on the the fishery and on the species 
if we're going to try and maintain it uh, in a healthy, sustainable way. Yes. Is there a, um, I know poaching has been an issue from time to time uh, with this fishery. Is there a poaching hotline that people could call if, if uh, people are witnessing something they, they're not so sure is legal? Yes. Um, their enforcement uh, with fish and game, uh, not only have they been uh, vital to our efforts to go out and sample this event that came up so suddenly at the end of August, we were out on all the enforcement patrol boats, expanding our surveys and, and working with patrol boat Marlin and patrol boat Steelhead and all of our enforcement staff, but they also have um, a hotline for turning in poachers called CalTips. So it's 1-800-CAL-TIPS, and if someone sees uh, poaching for any species in California, they can contact that hotline and uh, the dispatch will talk with the enforcement officers uh, who are on call and, and working that area. So that would be great because um, having more eyes and ears out there would, would really help the resources of the state. Sounds good. Well, I think it's important. I, I know the diving community is very supportive. They want to see this fishery continue. It's such a special thing that we have here on the coast. I know it that really is. Yeah. I, I enjoy it from time to time, and it's a celebrated delicacy. So yeah. thank very you so special. much for your work in helping to help sustain the fishery and to learn as much about it to help other species as well. And thanks again for coming on to Ocean Currents. You're welcome. Have a great afternoon. Goodbye. We've just been talking with Laura Rogers-Bennett, who is the senior biologist with the California Department of Fish and Game and the University of California Davis Wildlife Health Center. And she's been studying and monitoring the abalone population on the Sonoma-Mendocino coast for some years now. And we just were talking about the recent abalone die-off event that happened this late summer with this red tide event we had. Um, it's kind of interesting. Coincidentally, I I was um, offshore at the Cordell Bank Sanctuary during our annual field seminar, and we get offshore to look for marine wildlife, and we had an, a mysterious absence of humpback and blue whales this September. And usually this time of year, they're feeding all over the place. I say usually because typically that's the way it is, but this year was not the case. And we noticed there was a lot of red water, and I saw those streaks of red and orange that Laura was talking about earlier. And I haven't been able to find any um, links in terms of a, a biologist or ecologist tying the link together, but I'm just I'm curious if there's any coincidence there. We had the whales move out of the area and a large red tide event, but we don't know. It's it's hard to say. Um, how those whales respond. It sounds like they're hanging out in Monterey Bay and, and out in Southern California now. And if any of you are traveling there, I just remind you that they are protected species and to, to admire from afar. There's been a lot in the media of some really close encounters. And these are very large mammals. So be careful and stay at least 100 yards from these mammals if you have the great opportunity to see them. I have one announcement here before we wrap it up today. Uh, the Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary is seeking to fill several seats on its advisory council. This council represents the public's interest in sanctuary matters and provides advice to the sanctuary superintendent. 
The council's role is to provide the superintendent with advice on the sanctuary's resource protection, research, education, and outreach activities. And recently, they've been focusing on climate change issues, vessel traffic, and protecting leatherback turtles. So the seats that we have available are um, for for input and for application. We have fishing seat, education seat, and a community at large. Marin County seat. So hopefully some of you listeners here are interested in this or know of somebody that would be interested in sitting in on this council. They meet four times a year. It's not a huge commitment of time, and it's a really nice way to get involved and interact with other constituents that are participating in the guidance of the sanctuary. So if you're interested in learning more about that, you can go to the sanctuary website that's www.cordellbank, C-O-R-D-E-L-L-B-A-N-K, dot N-O-A-A, dot G-O-V, and learn a little bit more about that. Thank you so much for tuning in today. You've been listening to Ocean Currents, and my name is Jennifer Stock, and the show is the first Monday of every month, part of the West Marin Matters series. You can go to cordellbank, dot N-O-A-A, dot G-O-V, for archived shows, and you can subscribe to a free podcast there as well. So thanks for tuning in. I will be back December 5th, and I'm going to be um, hosting Barb Emily, a fisherman in San Francisco, a fisherwoman, and um, I'm meeting with her in a couple, in next week or so to, to pre-record a show with her. She's a very busy lady, but really interesting, and I'm looking forward to bringing that to Ocean Currents on December 5th. So thanks for listening, and keep tuning in to KWMR. to Ocean Currents, a podcast brought to you by NOAA's Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary. This show was originally broadcast on KWMR in Point Reyes Station, California. Thanks for listening.